Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Marilyn Waite to the show. Marilyn leads the Climate and Clean Energy Finance Portfolio at the Hewlett Foundation. She has worked across four continents in renewable and nuclear energy, startups, and venture capital and investment. Author of Sustainability at Work, Careers That Make a Difference, Marilyn is also editor-at-large at GreenBiz. Marilyn, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you doing, Raj? Marilyn, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. Marilyn, where are you currently located? Well, I am calling in from Oakland, California right now, although I am quite the global citizen. So how's the weather in Oakland? Today, the weather is okay. It is never too hot or too cold in Oakland, so um, it's pretty normal, a little bit overcast. Well, sounds lovely. So, Marilyn, i like to open my show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Interesting. Okay. Well, I think my background is pretty interesting. Um, I am a global citizen with three nationalities and of Jamaica, the United States, and France. Um, I've lived in over 10 countries and I've visited uh, many more. And I really feel the oneness of humanity and identify with that strongly. Um, I have a background that ranges from working with the World Food Organization um, in Madagascar to helping to construct nuclear power plants um, from France. And, and so quite an eclectic background. And I think all of those things are interesting. I do too. So I guess without really saying favorites, where did you enjoy living the most? Oh, let's see. Um, each place has something special about it. I, I would say that um, I've learned a lot from living in Madagascar, um, given the, that it is a one of the um, most least economically developed countries out there. And I would say that I I find China to be fascinating, and I I've enjoyed that. Um, and you know, each continent has um, its own history and its own uh, trajectory, and I I enjoy that. I, I've enjoyed, uh, of course, living in France as well. Um, and so, no one favorite, unfortunately, but uh, lots of fond memories and um, lessons from each place I've been. Let's, let's stay with Madagascar for a moment. For those that might not be familiar, can you explain where it's located and some of the challenges they're facing? And I'm asking you this specifically because I listened to another podcast recently, a gentleman named Brian Fisher. I don't know if you're familiar with his work or not. He's doing some work on 
food poverty in Madagascar and insect farming. So can you share a little bit about, about your experience in Madagascar? Sure. Well, it's been about 15 years since I've been there. So um, it's quite dated in terms of my on-the-ground experience there. Uh, Madagascar is the fourth largest island in the world. Um, and it's quite diverse in terms of the topography. Um, you have literally rainforests um, and then semi-arid regions. Um, so it is it is wonderful. I mean, there's Definitely certain species like the lemur that are um, well known um, to the outside world. Um, and I, I find that um, there's a lot of potential economically for the country. Um, the, the language there is Malagasy. Um, and then I think roughly 15% of the population speak French as well. Um, when I was there, the government introduced English as a third language. Um, and uh, I think with the uptick in speaking English, there could be more um, connection to other parts of the world, including their neighbors uh, like South Africa. Um, and so the, the uh, it's rich in natural resources. Um, uh, vanilla is one of the biggest exports. Um, and uh, however, there's still a lot of uh, poverty and a lot of um, unemployment, especially youth unemployment in the country. Thank you for sharing that. So taking a left turn, can you give an overview of the William and Flora Hewitt Foundation that you're with right now? Sure. So the Hewitt Foundation is um, an asset owner and uh, what is known as a private non-operating foundation in the United States. So it exists to fund endeavors across a number of uh, issue areas, um, ranging from global uh, health um, and economic development to education to performing arts in the San Francisco Oakland Bay Area um, to the environment um, and conservation and climate change within the environment. Um, so I believe in January 2020. Now this has shifted. We had about 10 billion U.S. dollars of assets under management and um, spend between 400 and 500 million of that across these various um, issue areas. Um, I would say climate is actually not an issue area. It's a condition. It kind of is pervasive and threatens every other part of our society and economy. Um, and so um, I'm embedded within the climate team and I lead the climate finance portfolio, which seeks to uh, mobilize capital um, for climate solutions. So anything that will mitigate greenhouse gas emissions and focuses on China, the European Union and the United States. Now, what do you mean when you say mobilize capital? Do you mean deploy the foundation's capital or additional capital too? I mean, everyone's capital. <laughs> so <laughs> um, the world's capital. So, I mean, that's the, the high level lofty goal. Um, so there is a, a lack of capital and investments uh, into or, towards climate solutions. So there are a number of studies that have various data points, but according to CPI, the Climate Policy Initiative, we have just over 500 billion US dollars that are being invested annually in climate solutions. And according to the IPCC, we need at least 1.6 trillion US dollars um, it's globally annually going towards climate solutions. Um, and that's on the lower end of the estimate. So there's a gap. We need to at least triple what we're currently investing annually. And so 
We're focusing on three pools of capital, um, venture capital, for lack of a better word, uh, high risk capital, asset management, and that includes pension funds, insurance companies, mutual funds, including our retirement savings, and also, um, and most importantly, banking through lending and credit. So those are the three pools of capital. So yes, using our own capital in innovative ways, um, but ultimately it's to shift um, this the entire financial system uh, across those three economies so that essentially the signals in place are we should be financing less of the carbon intensive activities and more of the climate mitigating activities. And how have you seen or have you seen the conversation change with some of these different entities you mentioned over the years, venture and banking? So we should break them apart. So venture capital has its own unique history when it comes to clean tech. And uh, there was a kind of a a boom and bust cycle um, that happened before uh, with the 2008-2009 crisis. Um, also, um, a lot of venture capital is, is suited to high growth software based capital light solutions, whereas a lot of the solutions we need for climate are hardware and hard tech. Um, so it has its own challenges. I would say that there is there are now a number of new funds that are addressing this challenge and are targeting um, harder, harder, hard tech um uh, Interventions. One of them includes the Prime Impact Fund, which we have invested in, and that that Prime Impact Fund has a climate first thesis. So they will invest in startups whose solutions, when at scale, will mitigate a gigaton or so of carbon um, annually. So that is kind of the status of that. I would say that. We definitely need many more prime impact funds across the globe, including in places like China, um, that have definitely the asset management, venture capital backing, uh, but lack more climate focus or sustainability focused funds. And so we would like to see more of that kind of uh, fund structure across the globe. For banking, uh, lending and credit, we we do also have momentum, um, a lot further to go. So there's something called the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials, uh, known as PCAF, that was started in the Netherlands among the Dutch asset owners, managers, and banks to measure, disclose, and align um, portfolios, financial portfolios, so loans and investments with climate resiliency. So measuring and disclosing the carbon emissions associated with the loans and investments, and then decreasing that year on year um, until it's aligned with the Paris Agreement, until it's net zero, essentially. And so this is a very much a financial asset class by asset class endeavor. So, you know, what are the tons of carbon dioxide equivalent for your mortgage book and for your auto loans and for your project finance and for your corporate bonds and government bonds and so on and so forth? And that is really kind of the foundation to do so much more. Once you have that data, once you see where the concentration is in your across your portfolio, you can begin to make those changes. And what we're looking to do is not just 
you know, remove one particular sector. No, climate change is all encompassing. We can uh, move away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy, and we still have not solved climate change. We have to decarbonize agriculture and transportation and building infrastructure. And so uh, comprehensively across that is really what we're after. And that's one of the tools that we have on the banking side. And so we do have momentum. PCAF has been led by the sustainable banks, uh, banks that are members of the Global Alliance for Banking on Values and B Corp certified banks and banks that have sustainability embedded in their DNA, not just the banks, but also the credit unions and also you know other lending organizations and institutions. And now we see um, more uh, larger firms that don't have that in their DNA joining. Um, just this past, past week, we've had Citibank and Bank of America and NatWest uh, and Morgan Stanley join PCAF um, to agree to do this. So there is momentum there, a lot more to do, um, but we need to decarbonize, decarbonize our whole financial system. And this is a you know one step in that direction. So speaking specifically about the Hewlett Foundation, does the foundation make grants directly to companies, organizations? How does it work? Right. So yes, we make grants to any organization, um, legally, anything that is an organization and not an individual. So it can be for-profit, non-profit, be, you know, a public benefit corporation or 501c3 in, you know, U.S. legal terminology. Uh, what really matters is what they're doing. Um, are they aligned with the strategy and the goals that we seek in, in order to, you know, preserve the environment, protect the planet uh, for climate change? Um, including around the financial system that we need to align with that that goal. So yes, we we provide we use grant capital uh, for those means. So you must get a lot of inbound pitches. What are some of the more interesting companies, organizations, or technologies you've seen? Right. So I think maybe your question was more along like investing in startups directly. So we are in the climate finance portfolio. We're not investing in startups directly. We do. Um, support fund structures that will then invest in startups. So Prime was one example. We are working on a blended finance vehicle that will be managed by BlackRock. And so we're providing concessional capital um, to a a fund structure that will uh, provide equity to businesses and projects in emerging economies that are in climate solutions. So we're one step removed, so to speak. But we do receive pitches all the time from... um, Various firms that you know seek to do this kind of investing or seek to um, address the systemic issues when it comes to embedding carbon as a metric in financial transactions, and so yes, that is definitely a part of the day job in terms of speaking with a lot of people about what their ideas are and what they want to achieve and understanding if it would be a good fit for us. Understood. So you've been involved in the sustainable world since you were in school. The crux of our conversation is the why. What what drew you to this area and what motivated you or kept you in this field for all these years? So I think what drew me to the area is the same thing that drew me to studying first civil and environmental engineering. So very interested in problem solving, especially pressing challenges. So things that really matter. Um, I was attracted to water pollution, you know, in the very beginning, and then expanded to energy challenges when I 
was living on the Grand of Madagascar. We went a few months without stable electricity. Um, and that kind of just evolved while I was working in the nuclear energy cycle and in corporate R&D, a lot of our troubles were more on the financing side than the technology side. And so I became more interested in uh, finance and investment and those mechanisms. So really, it was just a kind of progression uh, of wanting to solve big pressing challenges. Why were you drawn to water pollution? No in-depth story there in terms of water pollution. Um, but I think just in general, being a steward of the environment, feeling connected to the earth and nature, and that being so central, I think it's also you know essential part of the curriculum for environmental engineering within civil engineering. And so there's a structural component in terms of you know building a bridge or building a building. And then there's you know fluids and the mechanics of those fluids and how that all fits together was appealing for me because it is, it's just so essential to everything um, that we, we have. I mean, I would say like pretty much the sun, (laughs) water, soil, all of those things that we can take for granted are just so fundamental to everything else. Um, And, and I was attracted to that. I agree. I think it's a fundamental denominator, if you will. I was just curious if something particular drew you to that area. So, Marilyn, what are some of the valuable lessons that you'd say you've learned on your journey in sustainability? So I've learned a lot of lessons. I I think that uh, what's top of mind right now, I just finished reading the book Sapiens. And part of the book that I've really been drawn to is a summary of the unifying factors um, throughout history that... um, it includes money, you know, the fact that we can use this thing called currency no matter where we are in the globe. Um, right now, it's, you know, facilitated by the digital economy. So we don't even have to physically be somewhere for transacting with money. But everyone understands that no matter where you are, the most remote places to the, you know, the biggest, the largest cities. Um, empire is another unifying factor. Um, that's a theme in Sapiens. And we, we, can think of these things as bad or the corrupting um, in terms of b- both money and empire, you know, right now, or in history, we've had the Roman empire and um, other various, you know, one could talk about the, you know, the European colonization, all of those things, which have definitely have had negative consequences, but they have been unifying in various ways. And I think looking at those, how to leverage the unit, what unifies us as humans is is quite interesting. And what I've learned is that, climate change is one of those things that really requires us to unify. And so we have to think about and leverage those things that bring us together. And so, you know, we're, we're working across these three economies, China, which is, you know, you could consider that to be an empire. The United States could be considered to be an empire, you know, and Europe itself um, also, I mean, very large swaths of land that have come together under a flag, so to speak. And so how do we leverage these, these various um, identities, um, that are unified and how do we leverage this thing called capital or money that is uh, understood and and unifying uh, to solve something like uh, that also requires all hands on deck, right? Because we cannot solve climate change with just one uh, border or or nation with just one uh, lever, right? It requires everyone to be on board. And so I I think that is, um, you know, that's a really important lesson. So, couple of things there. 
first, I think Sapiens was a fantastic book or is a fantastic book. I've been recommending it highly for the last three years. I can tell you when I came away from reading Sapiens, I felt both irrelevant and relevant. That was my personal feeling in that that entire history of humans and how in that time scale, just a drop in a drop and perhaps some of the differences I can make while I'm here. So I highly recommend anyone in the audience who has not read it to read that and also read his subsequent work. Um, I pronounce it Homo Deus, D-E-U-X, but uh, highly recommend that book. Yes. You know, you mentioned trying to find ways to get along. How do you how do you share that story? How do you, or what have you seen? What has worked for you perhaps to engage people to find these common denominators to work for the greater good? So I think what's really interesting is that people are already motivated by working for the greater good across sectors. So I wrote a book called Sustainability at Work, Careers That Make a Difference. And I interviewed people across the globe, mostly all the continents, to understand how they were incorporating sustainability into their work and careers. And it was very inspiring because I've seen it independent of sector, right? So there were people working in healthcare, in education and research, in media and entertainment um, across the board. And that was a common denominator. They were all interested in working for that greater good and putting their skills to use for that. So I actually think um, really just leaning into where people naturally start in terms of wanting to have purpose in, in their career and in their life and um, understanding you know, their particular take on whatever problem it is within that greater good that they're seeking to solve and then uh, understanding and leveraging you know, how they want to go about um, solving it or their particular skills and talents they want to put to use. So I actually think it's it's quite, um, if you just listen, it's quite easy to engage uh, with people. I think that uh, there's definitely, with the digital era, a lot of uh, ability to amplify those voices um, that are interested and that are in- engaging. Um, and I think we have to keep doing that and keep amplifying those voices because they're there. I agree. And thank you for mentioning your book. The first, in the table of contents, you have a four pillars of sustainable development. Can you share briefly what those four pillars are? Yes. Yeah, so we have economic prosperity, we have social cohesion, we have environmental protection, and we also have um, intergenerational equity. So we can think about kind of a, you know, the various bottom lines uh, in a financial spreadsheet. Um, there's that financial bottom line, which is you know the material part, which is important. Then there's society, there's the environment that we all depend on. And then there's this aspect of future generation. So I think what separates this idea of sustainability apart from other concepts um, is that you could theoretically at least address a social issue or an environmental issue or an economic issue today and have it solved today, and that actually caused problems for tomorrow. And so it's the idea that we think about tomorrow and all the tomorrows um, in addition to today that really separates um, sustainability apart from other notions uh, around the greater good. And so I think that 
intergenerational equity has to be core to and kind of run across all of those other themes. So I love the idea of intergenerational equity. Magic wand, five years from now, what perhaps, what interests or what particular projects that you're working on right now do you see or wish that comes to development? Yes. Well, this probably won't be a surprise, but I really do. Uh, I would like to see the sustainable banks become much bigger than they are today and, and sustainable credit unions. Um, and that can happen in a number of ways. That can happen through organic growth. That can happen through mergers and acquisitions. That can happen by some of the larger institutions today deciding to become a B Corp certified, uh, for ex- as an example. Uh, but I would like to see the, a complete cleaning up of the financial sector, starting with the banks. I think likewise on the asset management side and uh, in particular with our retirement funds, I would like to see that be completely climate friendly, um, aligned with the kind of economy that we're working towards having um, and that really um, is the most sustainable, most enduring one that brings longer term value um, and, and also sustainable returns. So that those are the parts that I would most want to see um, happen. And then as a consequence, the clean air, the clean water, um, the climate resilient earth, um, uh, you know, having us as homo sapiens live within the boundaries of, of, uh, of our planet. You paint a beautiful picture. Going back to your book for a moment, there's a line here in the description that I really like and I agree with. And it says, sustainability at work illustrates how sustainability can be incorporated into every imaginable career to impact the quadruple bottom line, which you went on to explain. Specifically regarding careers, I've been perhaps preaching quite a bit over the last year to friends, family, peers, anyone that will listen in my network about the opportunities in this particular space, whether it's green tech, environment, clean tech, what, you know, whatever, this, whatever the definition they choose. One thing specifically I want to ask you is that how can or what would you suggest, especially for women, you know, people of color, how can they engage in this next, you know, fourth industrial revolution, if you will? Yeah, so they can engage in all the ways, which is the exciting part. I'll give you some concrete examples, but really there isn't, um, it's not a niche, right? It has to be mainstream and throughout all the different types of careers. Otherwise it doesn't work um, to have this transformation of the economy um, and society. So there, there are various ways um, within finance and investment investments, incorporating environmental, social, and governance factors. Um, and it doesn't matter whether it's on the lending and credit side or on the kind of investing side, whether it's venture capital or um, private equity or or some other um, pool of capital. Um, if you are in education, incorporating uh, sustainability into the educational pursuit, whether it's research or educating others. Um, if you are in healthcare, uh, there's numerous examples of greening both the operations of healthcare, um, the supply chain, um, also just how things are done within uh, medical settings, and also looking at medicine more holistically um, and thinking about kind of the, the full person in society. Um, so there's there isn't the one way. Um, there are the multiple ways, and I would say think about 
another framework called SURF, uh, S-U-R-F. Um, S stands for supply chain. Um, and that is all of the things that are done to create a certain kind of product. And um, it's not just about the four walls of something being manufactured, but about all the raw materials and subcomponents that it takes to get there. You know, that there's a lot of work to be done on uh, greening supply chains and a lot of uh, various careers within that. There's the user. So imagine that you create the most sustainable product um, ever if the person um, or the institution can't actually use it, you know, if they can't recycle the thing that is recyclable, then that becomes not as, you know, uh, not as full cycle, um, not as completely sustainable. And so that's can often be the role of governments and, and public private partnerships to in, ensure that the full supply chain, including the usage of a product um, and the ability of a product to be reused and recycled and things of that nature um, is complete. So there's lots of, of um, consideration for the user. R is for relationships and relations um, that really you know cuts across on many different types of fields. But thinking about um, beyond just your immediate client or customer or shareholder, you know beyond that, but the wider stakeholders and communities involved that perceive themselves to be impacted by the work you're doing. So I think that there's a lot in that space. And then of course, uh, future, which I mentioned, um, naturally we could think about the educational system in terms of preparing future generations, but there are all other kinds of um, community systems that enable this kind of education um, and future generations to be looked after. Um, Incorporating that youth voice also into decision-making is important. So that's one particular framework that you could use in terms of thinking about the, the career choices you have and how, no matter where you are right now um, in your career, how to shift it towards sustainability. That's an excellent framework, Surf. So if I have it correct, it's supply chain, user, relationship, and future. Is that correct? That's correct. And that's some great advice and leads nicely into my last question, which is if you could share some specific advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? So my advice would be to talk to people you normally don't talk to. Uh, reach out to those that are not in your immediate networks. Um, think about not just what excites you, but what upsets you. And lean into those things um, because there's a lot of learning around what you may find upsetting and what um, what you may find to be kind of the problems uh, and in society and I would uh, definitely just reach out beyond um, what you may think to be, you know, in this space or in the space that you are currently in or want to be in, because there can be some gems there. And so that would be my advice to people. Marilyn, I think that's excellent advice. It resonates very deeply with me prior to COVID and over the last few years. I had this personal routine of three new people a week, no transaction, no agenda. Let's just sit down, have a cup of coffee and, you know, see what we have in common. So it resonates very deeply with me. And thank you for sharing that. Marilyn, I've so enjoyed speaking to you. And with your background, what would you say, you know, what action, what one thing can someone do right now to get involved in this movement? So the one thing you can do right now is to bank sustainably. So to choose a bank, open up a new account with a bank that is climate friendly. So these could be B Corp certified banks. They can be 
uh, banks that are part of the Global Alliance for Banking on Values, um, also credit unions. Um, and there are a number of them. I have a list on my website, but there are definitely more. And that's the one thing. And if you've already done that, then I would start on your retirement funds and your and your assets um, in terms of aligning those and making sure those are climate friendly. Marilyn, thank you so much. I will put a link to your book and your website in the show notes. Really enjoyed speaking with you and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.